Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, as a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to talk about the title of our show, Leadership. Leadership Now, we call this, and the reality is in the world where leaders often fail us, whether that's politicians, law enforcement, or even clergy, it is nice to be reminded about God's view of leadership, what he says about leadership, and take cues from that. So on this show today, we're going to talk about nine countercultural leadership lessons for every Christian leader. So can you take us away, Aaron, and explain what you want to uh, talk about today? Well, yeah, we're going to talk about leadership, and we're going to talk about leadership because God has created various institutions and various roles at different levels of society, different spheres of authority. And many people that are listening to this show will have leadership opportunities in their home or church or in government or at work. And it's important for Christians to have a robust biblical view of what leadership is. Because as we look around us, we are saddened by the number of leaders that often fail to do their job. In our own province here, we have a prominent leader, probably one of the most well-known leaders in Canada, in a Christian church, Bruxy Cavey, who has abused his office and has been accused on 38 separate incidents, I believe it is, of sexual misconduct and I rarely talk about those issues in public because I want to be careful not to throw guys under the bus before they've had their proverbial day in court. But I think right now he, we can talk about that issue because he's admitted mm -hmm. uh, to some sexual failure. Obviously, many of us believe that the premiers of our provinces have failed us in terms of upholding charter rights and the supremacy of Christ over the church. I think we all would agree that our prime minister and the president of the United States have failed their nations to properly lead in line with God's commandments. So we want to be good leaders and we want to hold leaders to account. So it's important for us to have a clear headed understanding of what a leader is, how a person becomes a leader and what the boundaries are within which we exercise our duties. So that's what I want to talk about today. And what I would like to do is to encourage my listeners to look at 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel has some fascinating lessons for us about God's view of leadership as Saul is appointed to leadership and then fails and Samuel is involved and David and the pluses and minuses of David's ministry. There's a lot of good leadership lessons there. So I'd like to share nine countercultural leadership lessons today and base them on events that we see in the book of First Samuel. So that's kind of the direction I want to go in. That's good. And you know, the reality is everybody needs leadership principles because you have whatever domain you have, you have some degree of leadership likely. If you're yep. a parent listening to this, you're leading your children. And it's mm -hmm. easy to it's easy to criticize the top dogs uh, of leadership, but then not think about how we have to implement them ourselves. So we want to make these intensely practical as well. They're not just for premiers, they're for parents, pastors, Absolutely. small yeah. group leaders, a mentor, et cetera. So, so take us away on the, uh, the first thing you saw from first Samuel. Yeah. Well, if you go to first Samuel chapter eight, verses five to nine, we have the people demanding a King of Samuel and Samuel prays to the Lord. And the Lord says, okay, let him have a King essentially. And then there's a statement in there that says, it's not because they've rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. That's, that's a fascinating comment from a theological perspective because it teaches us that God is king of kings and Lord of lords. And ultimately it works best when he is acknowledged as our sole ruler. But because of human sinfulness and human weaknesses, God permits leaders to be appointed, check this out, as an accommodation mm -hmm. to, to human sin. So in many respects, in the ideal world, in an eschatological kingdom, we're not going to need prime ministers, premiers, pastors, et cetera. 
Christ will rule from his throne directly and everyone will be excited about that and blessed by that. Hmm. But in a physical world, in a broken world, God permits leaders to be appointed to various offices as an accommodation to human sin. Now that tells me that we shouldn't be so excited about being leaders because it's really in a sense, not God's ideal, not God's original creational ideal. Think about, I've thought about this before too, even in society, think of how many occupations there are and how much government there is and how many roles there are because of human sin. Yeah. I mean, if you, if there was no sin in the world, there wouldn't be any locksmiths, there wouldn't be any police officers, there wouldn't be any firefighters, there wouldn't be any nurses, doctors, paramedics, there wouldn't be any pastors. Coroners. There wouldn't be any coroners. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so many of our occupations are a result of living in a broken world. Yeah. And leadership arguably is largely a result of living in a broken world as well. So God actually opposed the monarchy because he wanted to rule the people directly. So this again reminds us that leadership is often an accommodation to human weakness and we will never be perfect as leaders. We need to understand that. And we need to be careful about seeking after leadership with the view that somehow that's gonna make us feel better about ourselves. The best leaders are cupped handed, not closed fisted about their leadership. Cup fisted, cup handed, I mean, by, by cupped handed, I mean that they, they steward it, they are responsible, they will hold to their duties, but they won't make the mistake of closing their fingers around it and holding on to it as if somehow that's their identity. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, we're all servants. Yep. We're all servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And on occasion, he may appoint us to positions where we have to lead other people. But we need to be reminded that our leadership is delegated. It's delegated from Christ and in our leadership, in our decisions, if we ever make the error of failing to remind people that we are simply representing the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's when pride comes in and sickness comes into institutions and people start to suffer. And this is what we see in when pastors abuse their authority, it's often because they're trying to be little Jesuses or mm -hmm. trying to be Jesus, trying to be Christ, trying to be the, the, the ultimate ruler of their people. And the neat thing about biblical views of pastoral leadership, for example, is that there are boundaries placed upon it. There are boundaries placed upon church leadership, political leadership. Nobody has, no. there's no leadership role on planet earth that has absolute authority over the people under them. Mm -hmm. There's always a sphere, a series of boundaries, a job description, that we must stay within in order to be successful mm -hmm. leaders. Yeah. Now that reminds me of a conversation we had several podcasts back about nations and how nations, the existence of nations is a concession or is because of the result of sin. Yes. It's just a reminder. There's so many things, as you mentioned, that exist because of sin in our world. And while we want to be pushing for holiness, we're never going to reach the sinless world in this world. So the utopia with no leadership, with no nation states isn't here. Yes. Right? Yeah. That's a good, uh, good point as well. This principle of many of the structures that we see in social order are there as an accommodation to human sinfulness. Mm -hmm. They will not be present in the eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. Now, what, one of the other things that we're, we're learning from first Samuel is that godless leaders will eventually fall. So p godless leaders, irresponsible leaders, playboy pastors that are messing around with members of their congregation, tyrannical prime ministers or presidents, police officers that don't uphold the law, they will fall. One of the saddest accounts in 1 Samuel is found in the 16th chapter when Saul who because of his actions essentially rejected God's ultimate supremacy over him mm -hmm. was rejected by God mm -hmm. and he was replaced with David. And this is an example of no matter how big you are, no matter how influential you might be, no matter how significant your responsibilities might be, if you mess with God and you seek to usurp God's rightful authority, you will fall. 
that accomplishes two things. That's a warning to leaders to make sure that they're doing their best to represent Christ in the stewardship God has given them to lead. But secondly, it's an encouragement, especially during times like this, when we're all laboring under tyranny, that the tyrants of our world will eventually fail. That Christ will build his church, the gates of hell, which many of them are representing, will not prevail over the church. Mm -hmm. And so there's hope, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and we can be encouraged by that. Mm-hmm. So now let's maybe talk a little bit about the type of rule. So obviously godless leaders, but what's that, what's the ideal ruler supposed to be doing? So ultimately God, godly leaders are there to represent, represent to the world, the rule of God over the world that he has created. So in first Samuel 16, one, Samuel goes to Jesse, who now appears in the biblical narrative, uh, a man who kept sheep, who had several sons. He's quite prolific, actually. And God goes to him and he says that the specific language of the biblical text is that God had provided for himself a king. It doesn't say God had provided a king for Israel but God had provided for himself a king. So right there, we're tipped off that in God's mind, when a king is appointed, and this principle applies to pastors, officers of the law, political leaders, those people are there for Christ. They're rightfully installed. Their fundamental job description is not to obey their staff sergeant, Mm-hmm. or not to obey the governor general or not to obey their cabinet or the Senate or whatever structure you happen to find yourself in. But leaders are positioned and put in place to represent the ultimate rule of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is why, by the way, to tie it very directly to modern events, it is a critical miscalculation and a critical error for Christian churches to assign responsibility over whether they can be open or closed, baptize or celebrate the sacraments, to to assign the responsibility for those decisions to the state. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, the fight that we've been fighting over the last couple of years is a fight about authority. Mm -hmm. It's who has authority over the Christian church. And then by extension, who has authority over a person's ability to work? Who has authority over my body? I am not a libertarian in the sense that, well, I just want radical autonomy. Mm-hmm. No, I'm arguing that the state has authority rightfully given by God, that the husband has authority over his wife rightfully given by God, that the parent has authority over their child, and that pastor elders have authority over their churches. And we don't want to create this mushy, mixed up mess whereby the state has authority over everything. They don't. And I will never in my watch assign that to them because it's not assigned to them by God. Mm -hmm. But I am pro-government. Like I do believe that God does assign as an accommodation to sin in a broken world, kings or in our context, prime ministers or presidents to govern the people. So godly men will serve the purposes of God or they will fail. They will fail. If not in this life, in a generation or two, their purposes will crumble. So it's really important if you're in a position of leadership to understand in your heart that we don't use God to validate our leadership, but rather God validates our leadership for his own purposes, which ultimately is for his glory. Mm-hmm. If we kind of boil it all down, the mission of God is the glory of God. So ultimately, Our mission as leaders is to point people to God. So whether we are in a position of authority at work where we're governing over an organization, a corporation, and we're making sure that the products that we're producing or the services that we're providing are quality and people are gainfully employed and being treated equitably and customers are pleased and or whether we're in churches and we're preaching the word and counseling and exercising church discipline, 
or whether we are in law enforcement and we're wielding the sword and we're punishing the evildoer and we're rewarding the righteous, ultimately, no matter what position you're in, whether you're a parent, a pastor, a politician, or what's another word? A plumber. I had to get four P's in there. Okay. You, whatever role you're in, you are there to bless the people that you lead and to rep represent, which means to re-present, to remind. You're presented with something in creation. God is king. You're a steward. We forget because of the fall. So representational leadership is to represent to your leaders or to your followers, I should say, this creational ideal that Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. That's my job and that's your job mm -hmm. in any area of leadership that we may find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And that just is a battle against then, well, it, it's properly understanding leadership as a stewardship, not as a selfish, self-promoting, uh, my agenda kind of thing. You, you come with a a job description given to you, not created by yourself. So, um, yeah, you are representing Christ and makes very sense. It makes a lot of sense. And it's not just so much then either pragmatic about what works, what gets the job done. It's honestly just going back always to what our job is. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, let's talk a little bit about appearances. Cause I think a lot of people, when they think of first Samuel, they think about the, the key passages about, um, when God was selecting a king and appearances. It's, it's very fascinating that humans have received lessons like this from God. We, I mean, this, this, this book we're looking at first Samuel has been around for centuries, millennia actually. And there's a, there's an idea here that God doesn't select leaders based upon the outward appearance, but even after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, of Western history, we still don't seem to have locked that one down, even in churches. That so we have Jesse, and the scenario is now you got to go back in time and realize if you're bringing a king to govern your nation, those early kings were all military kings. Mm -hmm. So nowadays you could have some Poindexter appointed as your head of state, and it doesn't really matter because he's not going to be out in the battlefield swinging a physical sword. And even if he was out in the battlefield, he'd have machine guns and stuff. So as long as you can hold a machine gun, it doesn't matter how big you are. But in ancient times, the size, the stature of a man mattered, especially as a military king who was out on the battlefield in the spring, pretty much every year doing battle in some way, shape or form. So you can understand then that when Saul was selected, it was because he was really tall, not because he was really smart, but because he was really tall. He stood head and shoulders above others. And they're like, that's the guy we want to lead us into battle. So when you now go to king number two, which is David, and you're looking down David's or Jesse's line of sons, it's completely understandable from a human perspective that Jesse doesn't even think about bringing his youngest pipsqueak son into the lineup to be selected as king because he's just a little guy you know, a kid essentially. It makes complete sense from a human perspective. But God leverages this human propensity to select people based upon their appearance, their physique, to, to teach us a spiritual lesson. And that is that God is disinterested in outward appearances. So in 1 Samuel 16, 6, Eliab one of the older sons, his, his outward appearance impresses even Samuel and then God rejects him. And then it just kind of goes on down the line. So God is clearly not concerned fundamentally about appearance or height. Now, when, when you and I were little, little boys, notice the word little boys, we, I'm sure we would both recall times when someone would say to us, oh, you're such a big boy now. And we're like puffed out our little chests and we're like, wow, I'm a big boy now wow, you can ride a bike. You're such a big boy. I remember my aunt complimenting me when I was first able to um, write my first letter in cursive. I, I drew an A, a cursive A on a card. And she's like, wow, you know how to write cursive. And I just felt so big. You know, I felt so mature because I could write my first letter in cursive. And you, you say to little boys, wow, he's tall. Like nobody celebrates shortness. You, you, would, you wouldn't go up to a kid and say, wow, you're really short, you know? Or Rao, wow, you're really homely. Wow, look at those buck teeth. You know, like you would never do that. You know, it'd be very destructive on a child. 
because we accentuate physique mm-hmm. and beauty, handsomeness, all that sort of stuff. Even I was reading that since JFK was the president of the United States, only one president ever elected has been under six feet tall, Jimmy Carter. Interesting. So we tend to elect and look to people who are taller uh, because that somehow translates into authority. Like it looks kind of weird if you got a bunch of bodyguards walking down a street and, you know, they're guarding a king or queen or a president that's up to their belt line. Napoleon, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, even uh, what's what's the actor? Um, Sylvester Stallone is pretty short, but they always frame up the camera angles to make yeah. it look taller, right? But in the eyes of God, it's irrelevant. So the question is, one question would be like, how tall was Daniel? Hmm, no idea. It's never mentioned. How tall was was David? No idea. How tall was Jesus? How tall was Paul? What color were their, was their hair? What texture did they have? Were they, you know, bug-eyed? Uh, were they, did they have dental issues? You know, like, did they have extra long necks? Did they have no, no necks? You know, like, we, just, we don't double know. Chin. <laughs> yeah, double chin. We don't know. But, <clears throat> so we want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with being handsome or beautiful or good looking or tall. There's nothing wrong with that, but it, it is irrelevant to true leadership. Mm-hmm. Now, right. one of the things I've seen, and this is just sort of anecdotally, is this is a problem even for women. So typically you have um, women in Christian leadership, let's say they're conference speakers or they're worship leaders, and they always have to be, you know, primped up kind of thing. And it's almost like, wow, we, you know, we want to be very, some churches are actually selective in who they allow up on their worship team. You know, we want sort of the better looking people up there. I heard of a church years ago that would, um, you'd have to send them uh, photographs of your wardrobe and they would pick your wardrobe for a given Sunday because we wanted it all to match and make sure that you look good. Now, obviously you don't want someone up on the stage with their fly down and looking like a complete slob and, you know, bad breath and body odor and all that kind of thing. But we just have to be really careful that we don't exclude people or who are sort of on the average or below average mm-hmm. level of good lookingness mm-hmm. as if somehow the ideal is, you know, we got to market leadership in a way that's attractive. So we just, it, 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 it should be essentially a non-issue, right? A non-issue when it comes to qualifying for leadership. And so the, 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 um, the book of Samuel it just really helps us to uh, kind of put things in perspective that God often selects very unexpected people to accomplish his divine purposes. Mm-hmm. Now, the the flip side to that is that some people will take it and say, well, good looks isn't the requirement. So because they don't have good looks or maybe they're short, maybe they, they use the line, well, God uses people that you wouldn't expect. And so they go to somebody that has not the other qualifications that are needed, but they, they just, they feel like the odd one out and they're like, well, that should be our leader because right. that kind of idea. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. And, and that, that would be an overreaction the other way. So you don't exclude someone because they're drop dead gorgeous. Right. Or extremely handsome. Like yourself, Chris. Yeah, you know, that's why I invited you on the show. Um, we both have faces for radio, right? <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. So, <laughs> but um, oh, man. another, so kind of, Coming out of that, then what is it that God cares about? Well, in in First Samuel sixteen seven, it's very clear that God looks at the heart, and He makes this, you know, very um, expressly obvious. When I mean, He says it. I'll just read it here: For the Lord sees not as man sees. Mm-hmm. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart which is inclusive of the character, okay? The, the spiritual inclinations of a person, including their love for the Lord, their humility, their integrity, their passion for Christ. You can go to seminary and learn to preach. That's not difficult. You can start stacking up your degrees and have a winsome personality and a big mouth, 
or whatever it might be that people are looking for and opportunities will come your way. But we, we make an error as Christian leaders if we do not ruthlessly weed sin out of our lives, our internal lives, and really work on our character. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we practice honestly, honesty over and over and over again. We practice integrity. We regularly confess our sins. These are the kind of leaders that endure long term. These are the guys that will do the 20, the 30, the 40 year pastorates. The fakes, the frauds, the guys that are riding on their appearances, they won't last. They'll eventually get derailed by immorality, burnout, whatever it might be. They will get derailed. But people that are really in love with the Lord, and none of us is perfect, obviously. None of us is perfect, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you're in leadership, then it is a wise thing for you to be open to input because other people may see character flaws in you before you acknowledge them. And so it's good to look for input. Um, you know, I've, I've known men who have been in leadership positions for years and no one ever assesses them. They don't let their wives assess them. They don't let their elders assess them or cabinet or fellow employees. They're always at the top of the heap in every sphere of life. They're always the, the top dog in the room and no one assesses them. And over time they can, good men can fall, just fall, fall aside or fall away or be disqualified from, from leadership because they didn't see their own blind spots. So it's really important for us to walk humbly before the Lord. Humbly doesn't mean you walk with your, your, you know, your head down and shifty eyes and dragging your feet and always apologizing for everything. But there's a, there's a, on, on, on the level of your heart, in your motives, it's really critical that leaders get to a point early on in their leadership where they're like, I don't need to be a leader to feel good about myself. And if I am leading, it's because I'm madly in love with the Lord and I believe in the mission of God and I just want to serve him. And this just happens to be how God has wired me. That, that, those are the kind of guys that are going to stay the course long-term. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now there's also with um, what we see uh, Samuel selecting David, we see this other idea of nobody expects him. He's kind of obscure, right? Um, and so maybe we want to talk a bit about that. You know, when I was, when I was young, I, I didn't even think about these things. I didn't, I didn't think about, am I a leader or follower? Am I kind of halfway in between? I, I just didn't think about that. It wasn't a category that concerned me, but I'll, I'll just use myself as an example here. Um, I have many weaknesses and uh, as I've grown older, I, I become more and more aware of my weaknesses, but I also become more and more aware of my strengths. And I, I think I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin and I, I'm an example of someone that the Lord has chosen by his grace to use, to lead a few people here and there that from a human perspective probably shouldn't be in leadership. So I've, I've worked with several people over the years that have said to me things like, you know what? Um, I, I can't, I can never be a good leader. You know, I can never get to a point where I'm really confident in my own skin and useful to the Lord because for example, I come from a broken home and I'm like, Hey, did you know that I do as well? Oh, really? Yeah, I did as well. Like I come from a broken home and I know what that's like. And I know the pain of poverty and parental separation, anger and fighting and all that sort of thing. But that's not an excuse. The Lord can still leverage that and use that. The Lord can use the worst of life to accomplish heaven's best. And I've seen him do that in my life. Um, When I was a little boy, and I've shared this publicly before, I had a real anger issue where... I was generally happy-go-lucky and then I would like snap. And if I, by God's grace, had not been able to overcome that, that would have been a permanent disqualification from what I do now. Mm -hmm. But God can help you to overcome those weaknesses. I came from a family where we were just kind of very average, obscure people. We've always had a cool last name. Everyone likes our last name. Okay. But... I mean, really, there's no better last name than Rock. Okay, I'll just brag a little bit. But 
apart from that, our, my family, they were never prominent people for generations. They were just average people. And, but God has chosen of his own sovereignty. And I, I take no, I know myself well enough. I don't take any pride in this. I've been useful to the Lord shockingly to influence thousands of people in my life. And I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. I'm not pulling a Rick Warren here right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've trained a yeah. million seminarians. <laughs> That's not my point. Yes. Okay. Don't understand my heart. That's not my point. My right. point yep. is not to point people to me. My point is to point out that you don't have to come from quote unquote good stock. You don't have to come from a, a family where your parents were good leaders or things ran really well, or you, you were wealthy or whatever, you know, you were like the proverbial Rockefeller or Kennedy's to get into politics. You don't have to have that in order to be useful to the Lord. Mm-hmm. The, the Lord can use any bonehead, you know, to accomplish his purposes. And I'm evidence of that. And the, the, the situation we see in, for Samuel's is similar. Like Samuel's going down the line and he's kind of confused. He's like, he gets to the end. He's like, okay, is there another one? Like, did I miss, did I miss hear God on this? I thought one of your sons was the one that was going to be selected as King. And there's like a lovely delay recorded in, in the text. Um, because frankly, David's father had rejected him too. Mm-hmm. Talk about father wounds. <laughs> Read the old Testament. Yeah. So Samuel said, are your other sons here? And he said, well, there there remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And it's like, how would you like to hear that? Like someone's here and he wants to, he wants to meet all of your father's sons and every one of them are are invited except for you. Mm -hmm. It could feel like you weren't even his son. There's a lot of father wounds, by the way, recorded in the old Testament with, um, relationships between their sons and, and, uh, between sons and fathers. It's hard to find good guys to preach about as examples on father's day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> He's keeping the sheep. And by the way, how many fathers do we know even in the modern era that write off their sons as incompetent or not yet ready to serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. Like they make the decision for them. No, he's not ready. He's just a kid. Yeah. You know, he's not ready to serve. He's not ready for whatever it might be. Well, um, this is a good lesson that leaders often rise from obscurity. And frankly, most of the good ones often do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So leaders rise from obscurity and most of the good ones often do. Most, most good leaders, I believe, come from the other side of the tracks, Mm -hmm. from obscurity, from prison, from broken families, from poverty, from abuse, from a series of very stupid decisions. And the reason why those men and women are often the best leaders is because they really understand grace and mercy. It's not a, a doctrine, merely a doctrine, it's their story. They have experienced grace and mercy from God. And I, I, I can testify that about that in my own life. Like I just feel so honored to be God's mm-hmm. son and to be a, a pastor. I, I'm honored. I don't, I don't assume that I'm owed this. Mm-hmm. I don't assume that people should listen to me. I don't assume that people should follow me. This is an honor that I have received from the Lord and I'm cupped handed enough about it to know that if at any point in time, God wants it back, it's his. Mm-hmm. This is a, by the way, Chris, a hugely freeing way to lead because instead of being a man pleaser or trying to hold on to your position because of the salary that's attached to it, uh, which, which are wrong motives, there's when, when you're, freed from your obsession to have to be recognized when you're freed from your obsession to be a leader, people trust you more. You're able to lead more. You're able to make principled decisions instead of pragmatic decisions based upon finances or court cases or fines or someone walking away. And it's just a much easier way. You sleep, you sleep much better at night, Mm -hmm. by the way. 
So those are things that, that I see in the biblical text that God uses obscure people. It's interesting, even when you go through Genesis, right? You have, you have um, certain patterns. You have a fertility issue, which is questioning the seed promise, but you also have the second son, the younger son, the last son. Generation is almost always picked. The guy that you don't expect, mm-hmm. the guy that you don't expect, within, which in culture, based upon this principle of primogeniture, is weird because usually it's the firstborn that has all the attention and the inheritance. Mm-hmm. But it's always the person you don't expect, you don't expect mm-hmm. along the way. Okay. It's it's Jacob over Esau, right? It's Isaac after, even though he's the son of promise, it's Isaac after Ishmael. It's Joseph kind of, you know, number 11 of 12. And um, that's just a really cool, rem- it's David. That's just a really cool reminder of how God uses obscurity to develop character. Yep. So if you're in, if you're an aspiring leader and you're listening to this program and you're thinking like, I, I feel the Lord might be calling me into leadership in my company or in, you know, into marriage. Maybe you're single or into pastoral leadership or into politics. But I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, nobody recognizes me. Like I'm, I'm a nobody. You're a candidate worth considering. You work on your character. You serve well behind the scenes and you let God open doors of opportunities for you. And if you take that approach, you will be blessed and others will be blessed, but just make sure you remain humble or you'll stumble mm-hmm. along the way. Yeah. Now, what I am curious is your feedback for the Eliabs listening. So there's people that are maybe the firstborn, maybe the ones that have position, maybe have uh, prominence who are like, great. So this means I'm basically not ever going to be a leader. What would be your advice to those kind of leaders? Yeah, well, in verse 13, when David is called to leadership, it's interesting that he is anointed in front of his older brothers. The question is why? Was Samuel trying to provoke his older brothers? Now, this this could have been dangerous for David, whereby he's appointed, he's anointed in front of his brothers, and after David, Samuel leaves, he gets beat up <laughs> yep. and maybe there was some harsh words and there probably was some maturing that needed to be done. But he, even though he's anointed, he's not anointed to provoke his brothers or make them jealous. No, men need to understand that you do not need to be number one in order to be useful to the Lord. And frankly, very few people will be number one and very few people will be number one in all spheres of life. Mm-hmm. You may be number one at work, and number 25 at your church, you know, in terms of prominent positions. You may be number one in your home and, you know, employee number 778 at the corporation you work for. And this is okay. Mm -hmm. The earlier you become content to be led by the lesser man, the younger man, the sooner you will flourish in the place God has placed you. So there's, there's far too much jockeying for position in the church and in, in employment and in politics. Politicians are infamous for this. They lose sight of the fact that they are there to serve the people. And you feel like you only really have a democratic vote on election day. And after that, they just do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. They're not there to serve the people. And pastors can often be like that too. They're not there to serve the people. As soon as a bigger church calls or a, uh, you know, a, more beefy salary is offered, they're gone. And it's like, I'm just climbing the corporate ladder. I'm climbing the corporate ladder. Nobody benefits from that. They don't even benefit from that. Mm -hmm. So Eliab and his brothers had to learn to be okay being led by their younger brother. And many men throughout history who are very prominent, famous, have siblings. And those siblings have to get used to the fact, yeah, maybe my brother or sister is going to be a celebrity and I'm not. At the end of the day though, who cares? Mm-hmm. So most men will not, will never sit on a throne except in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll never sit on a throne. They'll, they'll never chair the board of organization ABC. They'll never be the, the lead pastor. Who cares? I remember Chris, by the way, this is a, a really critical principle for pastoral leadership. So you and I both believe that an elder's an elder is an elder. And that, you know, some some men may be called to lead churches of a hundred and some churches of ten thousand, and some might be 
serving in youth ministry or overseeing flocks in the church or whatever it might be. So we're all equal in our value and worth before the Lord. But you don't have to get to the point where you're a head pastor, a lead pastor, a senior pastor to feel good about yourself. Mm-hmm. Some people are designed, they're equipped to be the number two, the number three, the number four guy. And that is, that's where they're going to score their, you know, A plus victories. Mm-hmm. So think about this. If you knew, let's say the Lord calls you into pastoral leadership as an elder, and you knew that based upon your gifts and your abilities, that you could literally be like an A plus youth pastor. Like that's just how God has wired you or an A plus executive pastor or an A plus lead pastor. But if you ever stepped into another role, you'd be like a C at best or a C minus. Then why would you ever do that? Like, why would you not find the area of ministry and pastoral leadership where you can be the best that that you can be? Like if you take into consideration your giftedness, your personality, your experience, I've, I've seen men who, you know, they, they're in churches and they're in sort of a second chair position. They're an associate pastor or executive pastor, youth pastor. And it's like, people will say to them, well, when are you going to become a lead pastor? Mm-hmm. First of all, don't say that to the men of your church. Like don't, if, if you're a lay person, never, ever, ever go up and stroke the ego of another pastor, especially if it's the, the youth pastors preaching and someone says some stupid comment like, Wow, the senior pastor better not take so much vacation. That was a pretty good sermon, you know. Like I remember being a youth pastor and associate pastor, and hearing that kind of stuff. And I'm like, that that is not good for me, and it's not good for my relationship, and it's not it's not theologically, you know, accurate or apropos yeah. to kind of see that this, this levels of status. And well, everybody, the the end game must, of course, be to be a lead pastor. Look, one of the reasons why. Uh, one of the interesting dynamics of my life is that when I went into theological training and I felt that the Lord was calling me into vocational ministry, the one area of ministry I was absolutely certain I did not want to do was be a lead pastor. I just, I never wanted to be a lead pastor. Even when I planted the church, I'm like, I don't really even want to be a lead pastor now. But in hindsight, I think that's why God has allowed me to flourish, relatively speaking, in this role, because I don't need it. I, 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 I think this is where I'm most useful, mm-hmm. but I don't need it. And I never gunned for it. And when in my training, I was never thinking that's what I, I wanted to be a missionary or a youth pastor. And I, I did some of that and I learned a lot, but for, strangely, the Lord called me to Canadian ministry in Canada. I thought I was going to leave the country into a role. I just, I just didn't expect. And I think that's a really neat thing. And as if guys progress in ministry and it's clear that, you know, being a, a lead pastor is is the way they are best useful, then go for it. But we also need men who are content being the Eliabs. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you're, you don't get bonus points in heaven for being a lead pastor, mm-hmm. right? You lose your hair quicker. <laughs> um, you know, you, there's pluses and minuses to every role. So that's how I would respond to that. Few yeah. men will be top dog. And the quicker you learn that, the more useful you'll be to the Lord. Yeah. That, and that's so well said. Yeah. So uh, let's talk. One, there's one more side of the appearances thing uh, that comes up in the passage that's kind of unique. So, anyways, I'll let you take it away and pull that out. But well, in verse 12, when finally, and we don't know how much delay took place, but there must have been a little while to go in the field and bring him back in. When David finally showed up, it says, um, "Now he was ruddy," which which might mean like red haired, which is not bad to be red haired. I have some red hair myself, but it's probably a little unusual in the ancient Near East to be red hair. So he, he, he was of unusual appearance. So he was, he was ruddy. And then it um, goes on to say he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now I wouldn't mind being called handsome. Not sure I'd <laughs> necessarily want to say, oh, you have beautiful eyes. It's a little weird. <laughs> But what, what I think is going on here is when it says he has beautiful eyes and handsome, I, I think as I've studied that a little bit, what, he, what they mean is he was baby-faced. He was essentially cute. Hmm. Now, how, how would you like to be interviewing for a job, a leadership position, and someone says, Chris, one of the things they really appreciate about you, you're just so cute. He's a cute little guy. You know, you just, you're so, 
Wow. You have beautiful <laughs> eyes. You know, it's like, what? It's, it's, it might've been true, but it's not exactly like a manly compliment. It doesn't exactly reek of the kind of language you would normally apply to the future king of Israel. But that is the language that is directed towards David. And if you look at, if you fast forward in the text to chapter 17, verse 42, when Goliath is speaking to David on the battlefield, and uh, I'll just find that reference here. It's in chapter 17, verse 42. It says, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. Why did he disdain him? For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I don't think that's a positive because mm. that's why Goliath, Goliath just seen him. It's like, yeah. you're sending a cute little pipsqueak out to fight me. I'm insulted by that. Yeah. So it's not a positive. So if you're like, oh, I like to be called handsome and ruddy. No, you really don't. It means you're, oh, he's a cute little guy. That's not, that's an insult to anything but a three-year-old boy. Yeah. So um, what's fascinating though is that Babyface leaders are often useful to the Lord. Paul, you know, instructed Timothy not to look, not to let anyone look down on him because of his youth. Mm-hmm. It's good to develop early, to be out of the gates early as a leader, an influencer. Um, you may not look the part of leader. You may look like the Doogie Hauser MD, but God can still use you. And obviously he uses us differently at different phases and stages and ages of our lives. And yet it, God uses us and you may, again, not, this is kind of part of that whole appearance thing, but kind of taking it in a bit of a different direction. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. The baby face leader can be very useful to the Lord. Mm -hmm. The young leader can be very useful to the Lord if they're surrendered to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's keeping that, uh, that focus at the end of the day on is God in what you're doing? Are you surrendered to him? And maybe that's where we can kind of conclude in terms of how can we ensure we don't fail? We have, we have a pretty robust understanding of the work of the Holy spirit in the new Testament. You know, we've studied Pentecost. We know what the spirit did there and continues to do as people are baptized in the Holy spirit of God and then equipped for the work of the ministry in the old covenant scriptures, I, I don't believe that the spirit of God indwelt believers, but came upon or on, that's the prepositional language that's generally used to describe the work of the spirit and equipped them for special purposes. We see that in first Samuel 16, 13, where Samuel takes the horn of oil and he anoints him. And it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then Samuel goes back to Ramah. Well, this is, this is a critical, why, why are we given that piece of information in the text? Is it just to provide a flowery ending? No, there's no throwaway lines in the Bible. We're given that piece of information because it's, it's teaching us that only the ministry that's empowered by the Holy Spirit will be a blessed ministry. So we're not... I'm, I'm all into strategic leadership. I'm all into being thoughtful and well-organized and articulate and developing your gifts and being responsible and showing up on time and all that sort of thing. But whether it's your ministry, your job or your hobbies, only that which is empowered by the Holy spirit will be blessed by God. Mm-hmm. So we need to, we need to, and of course God does, bless humble service and God does bless grateful service. And God does bless people who understand like leadership. It's a, it's a, it's a common word. And it's, we, we put, we think too positively of leadership in many respects, because really leadership is a humbling word because true leadership is saying, I'm not number one. God is number one. And I want to be fueled by his spirit, but I also, I don't want to be fueled by his spirit to accomplish what I want to accomplish, but I want to be fueled by his spirit and blessed by his spirit so that I can truly be useful to the things that the spirit of God cares about. Mm -hmm. 
So being sensitive to the Lord's leading is, is a critical skill to learn, being discerning and um, walking in humility and integrity and holiness before the Lord. These are all critical issues. Don't be, don't be so easily impressed with yourself, mm-hmm. but allow the Holy Spirit to impress upon you what it is that he wants you to do and how to think and how to respond so that you might be useful for his purposes. And in the end, the goal of leadership ultimately is that God might be glorified. We should, we should be fine dying in obscurity, fading into the woodwork in the eyes of man. Uh, this, this is like a, an important sort of mental check mm-hmm. that, we, that we have to adopt if God is glorified through that. Mm-hmm. So not, not hiding from leadership opportunities in this life because we just don't want to, we don't want the hassle. That's, that's not right. Mm-hmm. But being okay with never being included in a history book, being forgotten, sometimes being used or misused by other people. We're okay with that mm-hmm. because if we're following the Holy Spirit's leading, God will use us in ways that he sees fit. And long after we're gone, um, you know, others will rise up to take our place. So don't, don't be too impressed with yourself mm-hmm. and, um, you know, be, be humble or you'll stumble. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to, uh, to say it, be humble or you'll stumble. I was chatting earlier this week with a, a friend about uh, how public to be in our, in our ministry, you know, reading Matthew 6, talking about don't do your deeds of righteousness in front of men to be seen by them. But at the same time, realizing Matthew 5 says, you need to let your light shine so others may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So the point is, basically, you will need to lead at times, but the leadership is for God's glory. But don't try to get out in front of people to be seen by people. And it's this tension that's always existing because some of us want to just run and hide because we're afraid of being seen by men. But then that steals glory from God. And some of us love to be in front of people because we want to be seen by men. And that also steals glory from God. So um, going back to the mission of God as the glory of God is key. Well, thank you so much for listening to the uh, Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Just as a few housekeeping things, if you have listened to this podcast on a certain platform, it'll be continuing to be available there most likely. However, we want to just make you aware that we are also on the CJXC radio Um, Tuesdays and Thursdays you can find us there but also on the Fight Laugh Feast Network and they have an app dedicated to podcasts like this Uh, and so it's not only a great spot to find this sensor free but also to be able to find other podcasts of similar uh, types from friends of ours across Canada and the US so thanks again for listening make sure to tune in next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock Mm -hmm.